Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. The subject of this week's Holy Smoke is charisma, which you might think is one of the most hackneyed and devalued words in the language. Only the other day I saw an advert for a charismatic chartered accountant. But its popularity is no accident. Charisma is shorthand for one of the most revolutionary and useful concepts in intellectual history. Charisma refers to the personal magnetism that binds a leader to his or her followers. Our modern understanding of it is based on an idea, almost a revelation, by the great German social theorist Max Weber, who believed that the display of extraordinary powers was one of the driving forces of history. Those powers didn't have to be supernatural. They didn't even have to be demonstrably real, in the sense that they could be measured or proved to exist. What mattered to Weber was that charismatic individuals have inspired their devotees to force through unimaginable changes. Now, he cast his net wide. The Hebrew prophets, Jesus of Nazareth, Nordic berserk warriors, Wall Street swindlers and primitive shamans all exercised a charismatic authority that could turn the world upside down or vanish when the leaders stopped being able to do wonderful things. And perhaps both of these may happen, as the careers of Napoleon and Hitler indicate. The word charisma is taken from St Paul, who employed it to describe the supernatural gifts that descended on the first Christians at Pentecost. Indeed, Paul may have invented the word charisma. But it was the tortured polymath Weber who suggested that the sudden appearance of men and women who can apparently perform miracles, real or metaphorical, has transformed and disrupted almost every human society. Now, you don't have to tell me that charisma is a somewhat slippery concept. I spent the past five years wrestling with a book on the subject, which will suggest that charismatic attitudes are now seeping into everyday life to an unprecedented degree. But it also possesses an explanatory power far greater than, say, the antiquated Marxist concept of class struggle. My guest today is the diplomatic historian Professor John Charmley, whose unflattering biography of Winston Churchill divided opinion when it was published in 1993, as it was intended to. I found it completely compelling, especially in its depiction of the self-created myth that enabled Churchill to wield astonishing charismatic authority for actually a very brief period during the Second World War. Professor Chumney understands not only the political aspects of charisma, just listen to what he has to say about Boris Johnson, but also its religious dimensions. He's now Pro-Vice-Chancellor for Academic Strategy at St Mary's University Twickenham, a Catholic university which he wants to root even more firmly in its faith and heritage. He's certainly not the sort of hand-wringing academic paralysed by colonial guilt. I hope you'll enjoy our conversation. John, charisma is this powerful but elusive bond between a leader and his or her followers. Max Weber always emphasised that the charismatic leader, whether we're talking about a, a warlord or a shaman or a prime minister or a Wall Street swindler, exercised a rather fragile authority. Everything depended on their ability to deliver on their promises. 
And in a sense, the measure of whether a charismatic leader really was extraordinary was that ability to sway the crowd, an ability that could vanish overnight if you didn't deliver on your promises, and did actually rather dramatically for the subject of your magnificent biography, Churchill, The End of Glory. Perhaps the British people knew it was coming, but um, the rest of the world, I think, were astonished when Winston Churchill, of all people, was voted out of office in 1945 because he'd cultivated this extraordinary aura and self-cultivated. Everything appeared to be spontaneous and natural, but the intensity with which Churchill cultivated his image, I think, had a lot to do with the intensity of the bond between him and the British people. You paint a very, very amusing picture of Churchill in his pomp in your biography. I was just reading a section of it. It's so well-written and so funny, apart from anything else. He knew what his public wanted, and showman that he was, he gave it to them. Stalking through the bomb sites with taurine glares of defiance, massive cigars stuck firmly in his mouth, he became the mythical good old Winnie, someone at once human and yet superhuman. I love this phrase here, where you say that um, once he had full power and was armed with massive prestige, other people who had never loomed large in his imagination became simply adjuncts. But of course it was other people who did for him in the end by not voting for him. But I wonder if we could just talk about Churchill and perhaps put him in the context of some of these other extraordinary leaders, such as you know, Trump or Boris, who've arisen in recent years at a time when institutions seem to be failing and charismatic leaders seem to be flourishing. I think they all have, apart from the charisma, and we'll come back to that, obviously, one of the things they all have in common is that nobody thought they would become leader. Each one of them was written off as a possible prime minister or possible president from the beginning. Right up to the eve of his election, Trump was still being told by the New York Times, I think it was, that, you know, there was no chance of him being elected. Why is this? Well, one of the things that all three men and others like Disraeli have in common is that they fall on one side of the real divide in British political life, which isn't between socialists and free marketeers, it's between roundheads and cavaliers. And of course, the roundheads are, are naturally enough uh, dominate because on the whole, they are well disciplined, they are well organized, and they will simply grind out a victory. It's, it's like Jeff Boycott versus Ian Botham in cricket. You know, one of them you want to watch, but you fear you're not going to win. The other, if you're in a desperate situation, he'll grind out, but you don't, we don't want to watch it. But what brings all three men to power, and indeed other charismatic leaders, is actually the failure of the roundheads. At some point, so let's, let's take Churchill. Although he starts his political career very early, as early as 1906, he peaks at the time of the Dardanelles. It looks like his career's destroyed. He has a sort of mini comeback under Baldwin in the 20s. And then he's, he's off. Now, he calls it the wilderness. Uh, at the time, it was simply the backbenches, and he was dumped. Why? He was dangerous. He was flaky. He was egotistical. He couldn't be trusted. He drank too much etc 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 why was trump sort of thought to be unelectable much the same reason far too charismatic far too flamboyant far too flaky boris get real impossible uh, dishonest dishonorable and uh, you couldn't trust him as far as you could throw him 
and of course in times of uh, in times of stability and when the uh, when the roundheads are gri grinding out their all the boring victories um people will vote for them what happens however when the roundheads fail when actually business as usual doesn't work and that's where we get the opportunity for the man of charisma and there's a missed opportunity here which shows you that it can work the other way so in 1931 when um, labor panic at the height of the the, the great crash and they know cuts need to be made but they can't make them and a national government is formed it is full of all the safe men, every boring safe politician you've ever heard of and never heard of uh, joins the government. And um, Oswald Mosley, who is, is pre-fascist phase here, he's founded the new party, it's failed. He writes to Bob Boothby, whom you'll know, of course. The thing that always impressed me about Bob Boothby is that here's somebody who had an affair with both Lady Dorothy Macmillan, the prime minister's wife, and one of the Cray twins. Well, there was, there was a man for equal opportunities and diversity, clearly. And of course, so Mosley, very, very angry at all these boring grey men in government, writes to, uh, uh, writes to Boothby and said, look, Winston, you've been excluded, I've been excluded, Winston's been excluded, Lloyd George has been excluded, what will the people say? And Boothby, rather amusingly, writes back and he'll say, well, all the shits are in the same basket and we're well shot of them. And at that time, people thought what they needed, economic crisis, you need a Gordon Brown figure, and in this case, it's Neville Chamberlain, to grind out the results. What happens, however, when it's not economics, when it's foreign policy, and when that goes wrong, and it goes badly wrong, Chamberlain gets it wrong, the country finds itself at war, and if you look at the, what brings Churchill to power, rather like with Boris, in normal circumstances, he shouldn't get it. He actually cocks up the first major campaign, the Norwegian campaign, which is his idea. It's a total failure. But the point here is charisma. People are bewildered and they need a leader. Every single cavalier in Whitehall stands back because they're, they're worried. They don't want to take responsibility. That's one of the problems with cavaliers. What will the roundheads do? It's got to be Halifax. He's the sound man. George VI, the Queen Mother, as uh, she becomes later, every single person wants Halifax, except Halifax. And the only reason he doesn't want it is what he doesn't want is to put up with Winston sniping at him from the back benches and saying, you should have tried victory at all costs, war at all costs. So he thinks Winston will fail. A very common phenomenon. Pierre Laval, the French collaborator who gets shot after being tried as a Quisling in 1946, he says at his trial, who but an idiot could imagine that Britain would not negotiate an armistice? So Churchill is supposed to be a stopgap until it, until it becomes perfectly clear that the only way through is an armistice. As one person doesn't believe this. So they give Churchill the job. And instead of Churchill failing, Churchill ramps up the charisma. Those great speeches everyone remembers, like we shall fight them on the beaches, they're a very, very short piece of Churchill's premiership. But they're crucial, and they take place in May and June 1940, because that's where the charisma strikes. What he does is he uses the media, and the media is crucial for charismatic politicians. He uses the media, in this case the radio, to get out there and literally, and he knows what he's doing, he is appealing over the heads of all the round heads to the people, and he's offering them vision. 
Interesting you talk about the media. I agree with you. It's absolutely crucial for charismatic politicians or charismatic figures of any type. And I think we could date this back certainly to the 16th century when the popularization of printing meant that all sorts of charismatic prophets and other eccentrics managed to amass a following very suddenly. And strange ideas spread right throughout Europe. And interestingly, one of the things Max Weber says is that charisma is often the carrier of new systems of ideas. In the 19th century, the emergence of the press made a huge difference to, for example, somebody like Theodore Roosevelt. Also, the invention of photography and the ability of newspapers to carry photography and then newsreels. I think one of the first leaders to try and harness that was the Kaiser, who appeared in endless newsreels and desperately tried to project his image, not necessarily with huge success. Max Weber despised him and thought he was an example of a fake charismatic leader, but it's very difficult to tell a fake from the real thing. But if we're looking at a figure who owes much of his ebbing and flowing popularity, if not nearly all of it to the media, it's Boris Johnson, our current prime minister. Boris, who, like Churchill, wields a very, very fluent journalistic pen. Like Churchill, actually he's got quite a few things in common with him, half American for a start, has a cavalier attitude to just about everything, knows how to deliver a joke, knows how to pluck a browsing piece of rhetoric out of the air, is instantly recognisable. You can make fun of him, but you do so at your peril because he's so quick with one-liners. So to what extent do you think Boris, who after all has written a book about Churchill, apparently, I haven't read it, nothing like as good as yours, not even remotely in the same league, but to, to what extent do you think Boris has something in common with Winston Churchill? What he has in common with Churchill is that journalistic flair. And I think Boris has naturally what Churchill had to work hard at. Churchill worked very, very hard at that repartee and very, very hard at his speeches. He would rehearse for hours in front of the mirror. Boris, I think, has the gifts more naturally than Churchill does. The person, it seems to me, though, that Boris really resembles is not Churchill, because for all Churchill's similarity on the surface... Winston put in hard work. I mean, he really did put in the hours. At his prime, he could master the detail. Boris, as we know, is, um, what should we say, um, a big picture person. He could never see a leaf because the forest was much more attractive. And why go into detail? He has that in common with Disraeli, another wordsmith, and another man whom all his contemporaries distrusted profoundly. For example, during the Corn Law debate, Peel, the ultimate roundhead, if you like, stands up and, and really stung by Disraeli's criticisms, and they're all personal criticisms, So, well, if I'm so bad, why did the honourable gentleman want to join my government? And Disraeli just lies. He says, I didn't. Peel is so taken aback, he doesn't have the letter on him. Of course he doesn't. But no one would expect a gentleman and an MP to just lie on the floor of the House of Commons. It was an amazing risk. If Peel had been prepared, he could have pulled the letter out and said, well, that's a bit odd. That looks like your signature, matey. But Disraeli gets away with it. And of course, one of the things with Disraeli, and this is the thing he has in common with Boris, is one of the things that, that people price in, the electorate price in and his friends price in, is... You, of course you can't trust a word, he says. Truth is relative. Truth is whatever serves my purpose that day. And of course, nothing infuriates the roundheads more. You know, he's lying. And it's like people say, of course he's lying. It's like you're saying an actor isn't telling the truth when he's playing the part. We know that. What's your point? 
And you talk about risk. You say that the Israeli took a huge risk by turning this whopper on the floor of the House of Commons. But the taking of risks is integral to the acquisition of charismatic authority. It is risk takers who manage to win a following. There are also, of course, lots and lots of people who take silly risks, they don't pay off, and they become failed charismatic leaders of whom there are always infinitely more than successful ones. But this forms part of my own grand theory about the spread of charisma in everyday life. Max Weber thought that charisma would be sidelined, never extinguished, but increasingly sidelined by the development of a bureaucratic machine. Well, things didn't turn out that way. And if Weber had lived another 15 years, he would have discovered that, of course, with the rise of Hitler. But the taking of risk seems to me inherent in the conditions of 21st century life, because business as usual has a very hard time coping with the unpredictability of a life in which changes are driven by technology, in which huge corporations are really at the mercy of the next innovation from Silicon Valley, which incidentally is an extraordinarily charismatic environment in which everybody has a, everybody has a vision. I mean, the atmosphere in a startup is not unlike the atmosphere in a small Pentecostal church or a cult, and I know because I've experienced both. But I think of us moving increasingly towards what I'd call the charismatic style in everyday life, at a time when you can't plan your career in the way that, for example, my father did. He joined the Prudential Insurance Company in 1947 and stayed there till the day he died and did very well in it. And it had its own sort of strange Victorian hierarchy of titles or principals and controllers and deputy controllers. And it didn't get rid of it until the 80s, I don't think. And that will be unthinkable now, not least at the Peru, which, is, which, has, had some, um, which has been through some very unstable times. Uh, we live in an era of the celebrity CEO, something that actually predates the internet. I think Lee Iacocca of Chrysler might be perhaps the first example of it, though Henry Ford was certainly a, a celebrity CEO of his own, of a very strange variety. But my point is that we're living in an era in which because you can't plan your career, you have to look out for yourself all the time. And even in everyday office business meetings, there is a need to shine, a need to perform, if you like, that perhaps wasn't there, certainly routinely, in office life generally. And now I see it absolutely everywhere, and of course I see it reflected in social media as well. It's quite extraordinary the way that teenagers are developing the easy rapport with their audiences, sometimes very small audiences, but the, the mannerisms and the self-confident style of celebrities as they broadcast their shows from their bedroom. If you, for example, compare a vox pop down in the 1950s or even the 1970s or even the 80s, stop somebody in the street from the local TV station, they're likely to be flummoxed and nervous. Now people rattle off all sorts of nonsense completely fluently because we're used to doing it. Do you take my point? Totally. And in, in that sense, uh, um, it's back to that theme that what gives charismatics their opportunity. What gives them their opportunity is instability. And, you know, in piping times of peace or, or, in time, or in times of austerity, in other words, when what you want is a Gordon Brown, you get a Gordon Brown. But of course, Gordon Browns bore people after a while. Uh, you know, they probably bore themselves. They bored me after five Absolutely. minutes. Absolutely. <laughs> they probably bore themselves. And in democratic politics, you can have that for a bit. In a, in, in a crisis where it looks as though a Neville Chamberlain or a Gordon Brown is what you need. But these people won't win elections. 
You know, it, it, it's instructive that um, you know the most hated man in the Labour Party, as it were, is Tony Blair, um, who is the only Labour Prime Minister other than Harold Wilson to win three elections, and Blair won them three on the trot. And it's interesting here, because you know we talked about single names. So so Blair is Blair or Tony, uh, Boris is Boris, Maggie is Maggie, Winston is Winston. None of the others, not one of them, has that kind of name recognition. Yeah, there was and, no Nev, was there? Uh, there's, you know, no one calls him Nev. He's not known as anything except a miserable so-and-so. Uh, and so you, you've got this problem in democratic politics, particularly in the, in the era of media. If you want to win, and this is back to your point about charisma in business and everyday life, if you want to stand out, and of course, one of the ways in which you win elections is you stand out, then you have to have uh, an angle. And so, I mean, although I don't think he's charismatic in the, in, the, in the same way at all, but, you know, if you compare someone like Corbyn, who has a, at least a cult, uh, with dear old Keir Starmer, Keir Starmer's the Neville Chamberlain de Nojour. Uh, no doubt a perfectly sound sort of fellow, but boring. Whereas Jeremy, terribly dangerous from my point of view and probably yours, I mean, totally unsuitable to be prime minister, which is one reason that uh, he kept losing. But Labour have not come up with, and until they do come up with, a charismatic politician, then they will continue to lose elections. And one reason they'd like Boris gone is he, for all, for all his problems... He, he has been an election winner. I think Jeremy Corbyn, who didn't come across as an immediately charismatic figure, in fact, when he stood as leader of the Labour Party, I thought, God, is that old loony still in the Commons? <laughs> but although not naturally charismatic in the accepted sense, I think he's an example of somebody who had charisma thrust upon him. Do you remember those, that hideous Glastonbury Festival in which, in which people were ch- chanting Jeremy Corbyn and... Um, yes. John Snow joined in. Oh, God help us. Um, so I, he never I, saw, let's face it, Snow never saw a bandwagon he did from, that, from that angle that he didn't feel like joining. Well, tragically, he's now retiring from broadcasting. I don't oh, well. know what we'll do without his oily platitudes. But um, The great thing about people like Snow is, is that, you know, um, my father, who was a great gambling man, uh, on the horses used to say that no one is always right in their bets but the second most useful thing is having a friend who's also a gambler who's always wrong <laughs> and snow is terribly useful from that point of view you can't know anything about anything but if snow's in favor of it you know it's wrong so corbyn is an example of the crowd if you like deciding that somebody is charismatic but they decided pretty quickly that he wasn't but he's a cultist. And I mean, one of the interesting things here, Damien, is that, you know, uh, Corbyn, in one sense, is, is not, as you've said, conventionally charismatic, yet he is the head of a cult. And of course, it's perhaps not, not insignificant that, uh, I mean, popular parlance outside of politics and showbiz, the other area that charisma is often used about, not, not least in America, are TV evangelists. And they have to have charisma, and of course, uh, charisma, uh, charisma has has a uh, uh, has a Christian origin, I think, doesn't it? It does, and people must be wondering. So, this is supposed to be a religion podcast. When are we going to get round to religion? Well, charisma has a very specific Christian origin, as far as we know. 
because the first recorded reference to charisma comes from St. Paul in his uh, first letter to the Corinthians, in which he adds the suffix ma, which denotes something that's given, to charis, which meant all sorts of things, but usually some sort of gift in the Greek of his day. So he, he joins gift to that which is given to produce this word charisma, and it's plural, charismata, and he meant grace given by God. And what's interesting about Paul's reference to charisma is that he's not celebrating charisma so much as warning the early Christians not to overindulge in it. Those Christians who are wielding the powers that they believed had descended on them at Pentecost, some of them clearly were going around issuing prophecies, carrying out healings and exorcisms in a rather ungovernable way. And so Paul is attempting to keep the lid on charisma. These were very unstable times, of course. There were many different varieties of Christianity in, in the first couple of centuries and many charismatic leaders who disappeared, for example, the Marcionites. But it is a Christian concept, although we've come to understand in, in the much broader concept developed by Max Weber, that it is initially a Christian concept. It reminds us that risk-taking was integral to Christianity from the very beginning because nobody took more risks than Jesus of Nazareth. And if you're not a Christian, you would say that the risks didn't pay off, at least personally for him. Yeah, I mean, indeed, I mean, here, I think, there's an instructive contrast in a number of ways. What we see in the gospel accounts is a Jesus who takes risks all the time, not least in that last that last visit to Jerusalem, where to the, the grey men, to the high priests, uh, to the establishment, He's, he's very dangerous. And, you know, uh, it is better that one man should die than that, all the, than that the people should suffer. One interpretation of what Judas is up to is Judas is disappointed. Judas thinks that, that, that you know, he's a failed risk taker. It's best to get him out of the way, sell him down the river. Uh, and, of course, at the end, at Gethsemane, at Golgotha, Jesus' risk does look in worldly terms as though it's failed. After all, Mary Magdalene and the, and the women don't go to the tomb on that first Easter Sunday in order to see a risen Christ. They go there in order to, uh, to finish off the funerary arrangements. So, you know, Peter betrays him as well. The difference is that, and this is what makes Christianity literally, Paul is right, either Christ rose from the dead or our faith is in vain. What happened was that Christ rose from the dead and that justified everything. And this is a problem, as you've said, and it's a problem for Paul, because if that is so, if you are filled with the Holy Spirit and you prophesy, that, put, that makes you as dangerous as Jesus. How do you control these people? And if you look at Peter, who, of course, having betrayed Jesus, is forgiven and restored and uh, uh, becomes, uh, becomes a great leader. But, but Peter is, is unstable from Paul's point of view. Here's a man, after all, who seems to agree that, yes, yes, table fellowship with the Gentiles is fine and uh, we'll carry on with that. And the next thing poor old Paul knows is some chaps from Jerusalem and James's church have turned up and said to, said to Peter, oh, you shouldn't be doing that, you know. And Peter goes, oh dear, uh, fine, we better not. 
throwing the whole thing into turmoil. And, and you know, one only has to, has to imagine the counterfactual here. If Peter had stayed in that position, and that had been the position of the early Christian church, that circumcision, male circumcision, and the dietary laws actually applied, Christianity would probably have died out. And indeed, there was a powerful movement. I think they were called the Ebionites. There was, indeed. Essentially, Christianity must be contained within Judaism. Just That's as, right. Just as the Marcionites believed it the exact opposite, that the Christian God and the Jewish God were entirely separate, and that no Christian should do anything that any Jew would do. I see the history of the Catholic Church in many ways as an attempt to hold on to the charisma of Jesus' message and the charisma exhibited by the early disciples, the early popes, the saints, but inevitably the church has to somehow keep it under control, and that century has proved a very difficult process. One of Weber's charismatic leaders he mentions is St Francis of Assisi, which is an example of a successful, but only just successful, attempt to keep <laughs> St Francis's charism within the church. There were other so-called Franciscans who went off and became effectively brigands and, and renegades and apocalyptic fanatics. So throughout the history of the church there have been charismatic moments and the church has had to decide well do we accept it or do we reject it i mean look at the battles over for example one thing's not just of ignatius Loyola and, and the jesuits but of the apparitions at lourdes as well is this something we accept or something we reject it's a very very difficult trick to pull off but my feeling and i, I suspect it's yours as well is that orthodox christianity in general and the Catholic Church in particular, but I think this definitely applies to the Church of England, has lost touch with charisma. It's so suspicious of charismatic leaders that it's promoting the Neville Chamberlains of this world relentlessly and almost without exception. And we are paying the price. I was just thinking, in my lifetime, has there been a successful leader in British Christianity? Yes, there has, though perhaps more for his image than his achievement. That's Cardinal Basil Hume. But that's it. I mean, Michael Ramsey... That's very young then, but Michael Ramsey had a popular image. But after him, one disaster after another. Rowan Williams had charisma, but it was a charisma that didn't fit with his office. And we'd better not talk about the last two cardinals, given your position. But I think my views are my views pretty <laughs> indeed, indeed. Well, I mean, if you go, if, but if you look at Rowan Williams, he's a really interesting example, because quite clearly he has a charisma. It's a particular type of charisma. But you can't, as it were, listen to him without being struck by it. And he's got what, what someone once called that deep, rich, brown voice uh, that's very attractive. And at his best, there is a charisma there. But as you say, the problem is the Church of England didn't quite know what to do with him. So let's make him Archbishop of Canterbury, because obviously a man with, with those great spiritual gifts and those great gifts of communication, the obvious thing you do is make him the CEO of a rather boring corporation, because you've got to keep the rather boring corporation going. So I think that illustrates your thesis, if you like, Damien, because what if you like the grey men do, what the, the men in clerical suits do is, well, we'll give him the top office because the top office should go to him. There's no imagination. What else could you do with a man with those gifts? The bureaucracy doesn't provide an answer to it. If you look at our own church, there is obviously one absolutely outstandingly charismatic figure, and that's St. John Paul II who, however you define charisma, if he didn't have it, no one had it. And in that sense, but 
in a sense, he is the rarity. He is the one example of a charismatic figure who has a successful papacy. But that's more to do with what he brings to the papacy and the fact that he's the first non-Italian to hold the job in goodness knows how many centuries. But most of all, of course, it is down to his charisma. He goes out there, literally he goes out there. He's the first pope to be a world traveller. So in one sense, there is a comparison there with Churchill. He just goes over the head of the bureaucracy. He goes over the head of the establishment and he literally goes out amongst the people. But we haven't really seen that. I mean, the, 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 there are those who would argue that our current Pope does something similar. Well, it's an interesting argument. Uh, I'm not sure that it's supportable. But even if you wanted to make it, there's no comparison with John Paul II. And in a way, I wonder whether that doesn't also illustrate your thesis. Here's one exception to a rule. Name another. Exactly. I have no difficulty thinking of charismatic priests People who actually, I think, have the combination of charisma and organisational abilities, as you can see from their flourishing parishes or their other ministries, um, that would make them very successful bishops. And it sometimes seems as if the entire machinery of the church in England and Wales is devoted to making absolutely sure that they stay in their parishes and never get anywhere near a bishop's throne. I just wanted to ask you about your own mission, if you like, at St Mary's University, because... Many of the charismatic priests I meet in America are Dominicans, and they're exercising their charisma very successfully through education, through the Dominican House of Studies. It's a mixture of intellectual rigour, apart from those one or two who've fallen for the idiocy of integralism, but it's a mixture of intellectual rigour, personal charm, so often, obvious holiness. It's very, very attractive. It's attracting large numbers of converts in America. We don't have a charism of education or haven't had a charism of education in England and Wales, until perhaps Francis Campbell arrived at St Mary's. This is your former Vice-Chancellor now in Australia, somebody who I think has his own charisma, of whom I'm an enormous fan. He appointed you, apart from anything else, which I, which I, which I think was taking a bit of a risk. And I, I, I suspect, to be honest, he's the only Vice-Chancellor anywhere who would ever have appointed me to that sort of position. Good for him. But... In a way, if there is going to be revival in the church, I think it has to come from the ground up. It has to, we have to reach a point where the, the charismatic effectiveness of local leaders is so outstanding and the institution is crumbling so fast that there's no alternative really but to promote them. And I wondered if you could just talk very briefly about what role you think the establishment of a proper Catholic university in Britain could play in that. Well, that one of the reasons that I went to St. Mary's and Francis took the risk on me is that uh, we were determined to, to be the ultimate countercultural university in this sense, that the historic pattern with all faith-based universities, former teacher training college, has been uniformly the same. Um, their religious foundations get forgotten. Uh, they move away from them. The church is whatever church it is, is prepared to alienate the property to them. And they go on and they just try to become universities like anywhere else. And, and that was happening at St. Mary's after the Vincentians left. And what Francis did, uh, and for this, there's so much else that he gets, should get credit for, but if he'd only done this, he'd be, he'd be deserved to be remembered. He put that into reverse. And what Francis did 
And what we've been doing is we've been stabilizing uh, the, the, the university, refreshing it, but also, and Anthony McLaren, uh, Francis's successor, is entirely, I mean, so much on message here. We've now got a director of Catholic mission, for goodness sake. Um, there were some people who wondered what on earth that was about. Well, what it's about is how do we, how do we take our charism? How do we take our gift? And how do we serve the church? What we try to do is we're taking that, 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 that ethos, which is, we are all children of God, everybody matters. And what we're about doing is trying to turn out rounded human beings. You might think, well, you know, we've expanded business studies and we're doing really well here. But it's not business studies as you know it, Jim, as it were, because what are they doing? It's founded on the following belief. The foundation of all business and banking is credo. It's credit. Well, if you do not have a common set of shared values, you end up in 2008, frankly. You end up with casino capitalism. But if in that, if in law, if in all other disciplines, you emphasize the need for a common framework of values, and those values are based around classical, I mean, our, our civilization, uh, as Tom Holland has pointed out, amongst many others in Dominion, is based around a Christian foundation. And our belief with St. Mary's is that in a time of relativism and uncertainty, the eternal verities will shine through. And our job is to emphasize them. And, you know, yes, there are changing fashions and, and what was fashionable today will be not fashionable tomorrow. And our job is not to embrace every passing fad. It is to emphasize the eternal verities. Well, good luck with that, John. And if I could just add a word of warning to watch out for the charisma-killing machine of the Bishops' Conference of England and Wales. It's a rather miserable paradox that in the modern world, perhaps the least charismatic leaders you will find anywhere are those running the organisation, the Christian Church, that actually gave birth to the concept of charisma. Professor John Charmley, thank you very much. Thanks very much, Damien. It's been great fun.